Good morning. It's good to be in Wheaton. Good to be back in Chicagoland. I actually did my graduate study at the University of Chicago uh, back in the 80s and uh, spent a little time at the Billy Graham Center here doing research into the archives. I love reading other people's mail and a lot of it is stored there and it was fun to go back and see the correspondence that took place over the years. But it's good to be at Wheaton. What a wonderful church this is, tremendous light that you have shined out to the nations. Uh, Even with some of your members who go to the ends of the earth and then pirate little booklets and things that (laughs) actually that little booklet is a free, a free booklet. We, uh, we produced that uh, when we started hearing these reports at the Southern Baptist International Mission Board. You know, we were receiving about a thousand uh, reports from missionaries, annual statistical reports on their work. And, and then we would get these occasional reports that had these phenomenal numbers, you know, like, oh, we had 400% growth this year. We had 1,000% growth. Or we started new work in 200 new villages. And we, of course, assumed that they had malaria or dengue fever or something was not, you know, right there. So we would send research teams in to investigate, to find out what was happening. We found God was doing something far beyond anything they could do or that we could do. It was a God thing. So we brought in a number of these missionaries who had been involved in movements, and we asked them, teach us how is God at work in these movements? And we began taking notes and recording those. And uh, I wrote down the first little booklet. I took it into our leadership team. I was so excited. Uh, Later, I said, I went into that meeting with what I thought was prime sirloin. I came out with a bowl of soup. They just chopped it up and and tore it apart because it was different. It wasn't the way we had done things. It challenged a lot of our presuppositions. We went back and examined and we double-checked and made sure, in fact, this was right. And we started seeing God doing these in more and more places around the world. Places like Cuba, places like China, places like northern India, an area that was called the graveyard of missionaries in Bihar State. God was doing something so amazing. It was hard for us to believe, but we wanted to align ourselves with what God was doing. So we produced this little booklet and we said, anybody who wants one can have it. And before long, we found out our distribution office said, we got a problem. There's 6,000 copies a month going out. Then we started getting emails and they were coming in. We've translated this booklet into the Hausa language, into the Shona language, into Bahasa Indonesian. Before long, we had about 40 languages around the world that it had been translated into. And so we realized this wasn't our thing, this was God's thing, and it was speaking to the body of Christ everywhere. If you're interested, you can download your own free copy. You don't have to buy a copy from Bruce, who might try to sell you one after the service. <laughs> you, can, you can buy this little booklet, 57, I'm sorry, brother, I'm going to pick on you. This little 57-page booklet is downloadable at churchplanningmovements.com. You can go there and actually download it, churchplanningmovements.com, in a number of languages. This morning, if you'll bear with me, though, I don't want to talk to you about what happened 13 years ago. I really want to talk to you about something that's happening today that has really got me, it's got me worked up. I'm excited. I've spent the last two years on a grant traveling anywhere I needed to go across the Muslim world to investigate a wind in the house of Islam. That's what we're calling this phenomenon of something that's happening today that we were hearing rumors of and we'd hear anecdotes and a lot of it seemed like it was evangelistically reported, if you know what I mean. The numbers seem, wake up, okay, evangelistically reported. That was funny. Uh, the, numbers, the numbers were bigger than we thought was possible. You know, you've heard about the you know, 400 million Iranians who have come to Christ. And we said, wait, there's not that many Iranians. Uh, There's something going on here. But we kept getting these reports from various places, and a foundation said, David, if you'll go and investigate, we will underwrite this anywhere you need to go. 
So for the last two years, I've traveled over a quarter of a million miles, collected interviews from over a thousand Muslims who are part of movements of Muslims to Christ. And I've asked them this question, what did God use to bring you to faith in Christ? Tell me your story. And I've been so blessed to get to see and hear the stories of men and women from West Africa, across North Africa, through the Middle East, the Persian world, Turkestan, South Asia, and Indo-Malaysia, all across what they call the House of Islam. And I've concluded that there is a wind blowing through the House of Islam today. And many, many Muslims are coming to faith in Christ, far more than have ever come to Christ in history. I'm a church historian. That's what I was doing at the University of Chicago, was studying church history. We've gone back and looked from the time of Muhammad's death in 632 to the present. And we've traced and tried to track and identify every time there's been at least 1,000 Muslims baptized or at least 100 churches started among a Muslim community. And friends, if you start in the year 632, the day, the, the day that the year that Muhammad died, and you come to the present, in the last 12 years, that is the 21st century, 84% of all Muslim movements to Christ have happened in the last 12 years. Do you hear that? My opening chapter in this book, Lord willing, it'll be out in December. <laughs> Pray for that, please. The opening chapter is simply something is happening. We go back and we examine every incident and episode in church history when there was any kind of a movement of Muslims to Christ. And we look at what's happening today. And friends, we're living in a time that most Christians are oblivious to. How many of you knew about this? Raise your hand if you knew about this. Everywhere I go, people say, you know, I didn't know this. Why haven't we heard this? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but today you're going to hear some of it. And if you come back tonight, we'll actually pull back the curtain and share even more and be able to dialogue with you and tell you some of the stories of what's going on. But first, I want to direct your attention to John's gospel. Let's go to the Word of God. John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, because I find in this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus... A relationship that really parallels a lot of what's happening in the house of Islam today as well. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In Nicodemus, I find echoes of what I'm hearing and what I've heard from these stories around the world. If you'll bear with me, I'll try to give, use that as a, an opportunity to give some insights into what God is doing. The first thing to note is that Nicodemus was a ruling man, a religious man, a leader in the religious community. When I first went out to the Muslim world, really in 1992, was, uh, my wife and I were missionaries to Libyan Arabs. 
we tried reaching Muslims any way we could. We witnessed to a lot of people, a lot of conversations with taxi drivers, a lot of good arguments. I learned how to defeat a Muslim in an argument. You simply say, you know, Allahu Akbar, we agree, right? Allahu Akbar means God is greater than anything. God can do anything, right? And they say, yes, Allahu Akbar. So if God wanted to become a man, he could become a man, right? Uh-uh, and it stops there. Now, you can defeat someone in an argument and not win them to Christ. And so I can tell you about a thousand ways how not to win a Muslim to Christ. Uh, we have failed a lot of ways. But something is happening today that amazes us because it's not just the low-lying fruit. It's not just the taxi drivers, although there's some of them coming to Christ. It's not just the people who are the common laborers or people who have been discriminated against who are coming to faith. It's religious leaders, religious leaders within the Muslim community. Christmas Eve, 2011, I was in East Africa. Notice I'm not telling you the name of the country because we're trying to keep some of those details confidential. But I was meeting with some, uh, some Christians, some local Christians, who said we are seeing thousands of Muslims from all sorts of different people groups coming to faith today. And I said, well, look, I've got time. I was there with my son who's a medical student. He had a little bit of time off from school. So we were there together, just the two of us. I said, I've got time. I'll go anywhere. Take me and show me what God is doing. And they started talking among themselves. And they said, we'll pick you up tomorrow morning. A van will be by to get you at 7 o'clock. And I looked at my son and I said, Christmas Day. And they were kind of shocked because they didn't realize that was Christmas Day. It was a different calendar they were using. But they picked us up that morning, the next morning at 7 o'clock, and we took off on a whirlwind that began with meeting imams who had come to faith in Christ, who were from one of the most conservative parts of that country. And they had come out. There were 20 of them seated in a room on the floor, 17 men and three women. And we started asking them to tell us their story. And they started telling us about how Jesus had changed their life, how through Jesus their sins had been forgiven, how through Jesus, they had assurance of eternal life. And they were still leaders in their mosques and in their Islamic communities. And I said, why don't you all just leave your communities and start a church? They said, you know, we could do that, but all of our friends and family who need Jesus are still there in the community. One woman said to me, she said, you know, when God wanted to reach men, he became a man. If God had wanted to reach hyenas, he would have become a hyena. He said, if we want to reach our Muslim family and friends, we must be like them. And I said, but aren't you being persecuted? And they pointed to this one fellow. said, this guy over here, he's facing a death sentence because they said he was an imam. But they said, you're teaching Christianity. He said, no, no, I'm just teaching Jesus. And they said, well, you can't do it. You have to leave the mosque. He goes, no, I think you've misunderstood. This is my mosque. I'm not leaving. And he took his mosque to court for the right to be able to stay. Now, what he knew was that the previous year, the court system had passed a law that said, within the mosque, the Muslim community is free to implement Sharia law. What that meant was, because he had given his life to Jesus, they had the right to kill him. And he was suing for the right to stay there and die if necessary in order to tell them about Jesus. We finished that night. We had dinner that night with a guy named Jihad. You know, there needs to be more evangelists named Jihad out there. (laughs) This guy was powerful. I found out three months later he had been poisoned by a fellow that he was witness to. Almost, Almost killed him, but his wife, who was a medical doctor, was able to bring him back. The next morning we had breakfast the day after Christmas with nine sheikhs. Now, sheikhs are not the same as imams. Sheikhs are sort of like a bishop is to a pastor. They were over imams. One of the sheikhs, they had all come to faith in Christ. 
I'd ask each of these groups, how many of you have been baptized? It's one thing to say, yeah, I follow Jesus. But baptism is death to an old life and life to a new life in Christ. When I asked that group of of 20 the night before or the day before, how many of you have been baptized? 19 hands went up. They said, this one's coming, you know, in a couple of weeks. He'll be baptized too. 19 hands. When I talked to these sheikhs the next morning, every one of them had been baptized and their ministry was taking the gospel specifically to sheikhs. They said, our goal is to reach every sheikh in the country. I said, how many of you reached for Christ so far? They said, we've had 400 have come to Christ. And I, I have trouble believing that. I know you all don't have any trouble with that, do you? I had trouble believing that. I said, okay, come on. Now, how many of the 400 have been baptized? They said, 300 so far. I was stunned. And they pointed to this one fellow. I interviewed him. I captured his story, and it's in the book. And I talked to I talked to him about his story, how he came to faith in Christ. We're going to call him Muhammad. That's not his name, but that's a good, safe name. That's about a third of the Muslim world. So I said, Muhammad, how did you come to faith? He said, well, you know, I was dedicated to Islam from the time I was a baby. My father said, my son will never work. He will only study the Quran and and become an imam and a great sheikh. And so I memorized the Quran at a young age. I memorized much of the hadith, the stories about the lives of the prophet. And I was serving as a sheikh. I had 300 imams under me. But my life in my heart, I knew that I was lost. I had an emptiness. And one day someone gave me an injil. An injil is a New Testament. I took that New Testament. I began reading it. That night I, I put it under my pillow on my bed. And I had a dream that night. And in my dream, I saw this minaret, the big prayer tower, you know, at all the mosques. I saw this minaret And someone was up at the top and they were repairing a speaker because it wasn't working right. And I looked at that and then I heard a thumping and I looked down at the bottom and someone was at the base of the minaret with an axe and he was chopping down the minaret. And I was concerned. And then I looked closely and I saw his face and I saw he was me. And I woke up sweating. He said that night I had the same dream four times. The next day I went and I found that evangelist who had given me that New Testament. And I said, what does this dream mean? And he looked at me. I love this. He smiled and he said, God is going to use you to win many shakes to faith in Christ. And he was the leader of this group who was going from mosque to mosque. Say, we want to speak to the shake. We want to talk to him about something. And he had a way of leading him into faith in Jesus Christ. God is drawing not just, he's drawing the the, the humble, the lowly, the marginalized, but he's also drawing people who are passionate and seeking, just like Nicodemus was. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, uh, you must be born again. He said, it's not enough simply to add Jesus to your current religion. It's going to take a radical transformation. Nicodemus as far as we know at that point, went away back into the darkness, not sure if he wanted that kind of a radical change in his life. But God is changing Muslims in radical ways. I told a story the earlier service uh, about a fellow who had been a Taliban. He'd been an imam and then became a Taliban, a mujahideen, one of these freedom fighters who had killed so many people in his life and finally just ate his heart out until he cried out to God, I've got to be saved. He went and found a missionary who shared the gospel with him. He became a believer and is now a leader of a growing movement. But I'm reminded also of a fellow that I met a few years ago in uh, eastern South Asia. His name was, we'll call him Salman. 
Salman was a Muslim, a devout Orthodox Sunni Muslim who hated Sufi Muslims. Now that makes sense to you, doesn't it? Wouldn't you hate a Sufi? You don't know what a Sufi is, right? Well, some of you do. You know, Sunni Muslim, that's 90% of the Muslim world, the Orthodox, the, the, the scripturalist Muslims. Sufi Muslims are the mystics of the Muslim world. Someone called them the charismatics of the Muslim world. You know, they're much more into experience. They do a lot of the whirling dervishes you've seen in Turkey. Those who do a lot of meditation, they try to mystically transcend this world and have union with God. So the Orthodox, scripturalist Sunni Muslims hated these Sufis. And this fellow Salmon, he said his life's ambition was to burn down every Sufi mosque he could find and to persecute these Sufis because he saw them as somehow half Hindu half Muslim. They were syncretizers. They were corrupting the faith of Allah. One night, Salmon, he was telling me this story. Salmon had a dream. He was lying in bed at night and he woke up in his dream and he looked and his room was on fire. There were flames all around the walls and he started crying out, help me, help me, someone help me. And the flames were moving toward his bed. Then he saw that his bed was on fire and he yelled, someone help me, someone help me. He knew he was in a village with many people, many uh, huts all around him where people could have come out and helped him and no one came. So he said he jumped out of bed, he ran through the flames, out the door and out into the middle of his village and he looked around him and he saw that every hut, every home, every house was on fire. They were all burning. And he realized that was his life. It was not real, but it was spiritual. He was in flames. He didn't have any peace and joy, but he knew that there were Christians in a village just up the road. He went to that village and he got a New Testament. He read about Jesus and invited Jesus into his heart. And as I had dinner that night, Sam and I were having dinner at a little Chinese restaurant down in eastern South Asia. And he said, God has given me such a love for Sufis. Sufis are my people group. He said, I've planted about 50 churches now among the Sufi people. I tell them about Jesus. I tell them how Jesus changed my life, what my life was like before, how I met Jesus, and what my life has been like since. Salman was born again. He was transformed. Muslims are finding they can't simply add Jesus. The radical difference, it's so radical that when Jesus comes in, he radically transforms their life, their worldview, their way of seeing everything. They become saved and forgiven and on a process of becoming like Christ. The last thing that um, Jesus said to Nicodemus was that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He says it goes wherever it wants to. You don't control it. You can't bottle it. You can't program it. You can have your services where you place room in there for the Holy Spirit to speak. But the thing is, the Holy Spirit may speak to you while you're on your way to lunch. He may speak to you when you first wake up in the morning. He may speak to you in the most unusual of places because the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He's saying it goes anywhere and everywhere. We found also that the Holy Spirit is stirring in the hearts of Muslims. How many of you have heard about Muslims having dreams? There is such a common phenomenon now. And I ask myself, why is this? And I think one reason is because we're listening to Muslims for the first time. I think maybe they've been having dreams for 1,400 years. But there's been no one around to give them a reason for the hope within them, to explain to them what the dream means. And we're beginning to listen and respond. You see, you can go all the way back to Muhammad. Muhammad had dreams and he taught his followers to listen to their dreams. So they're having these dreams and there's a common thread. Oftentimes it's not a guy chopping down a minaret. It's a being who's glowing in bright light. 
and he's somehow reaching out to them. Or he's holding a book saying, take and read this. Or he's saying, come to me. And they don't know who that is. One of my friends, Kevin, has taught me a lot about how to witness to Muslims. He said, you know, the stories become so common about this dream, about a being glowing in white. He said, and with Muslims, he said, Muslims are kind of like Baptists. I'm a Baptist. I can say this. You know what they say about Baptists? You can always tell a Baptist, but you can't tell him much. You know, (laughs) how many Baptists here? Isn't that true? It's true, isn't it? Yeah. Muslims are that way too. They don't want to be told the truth. They think they have the truth, but when they discover the truth, they're like Baptists. They'll hold on to it. They'll die for it. And sadly, before they become Christians, they'll kill for it. And when they become Christians, they will lay down their life for that truth. But they have to discover it. They have to find Jesus. And the trick for us is how do we enable them to find Jesus? My friend Kevin and I, we'd go down to the mosque when we lived in India, and we would just say, anybody here having dreams? I'll get you a cup of coffee. We'll talk about it. He said, uh, Kevin said he talked to a taxi driver one time who he just asked me, he said, have you been having dreams, any unusual dreams? Yeah. And the guy said, I have this recurring dream of this, this being, he's just glowing bright and I, I can't make out his face. And I don't know, I know it's not Muhammad, but I don't know who it is. And so Kevin opened up his Bible to Matthew chapter 17 and he handed it to the taxi driver. He said, would you just read those first two verses? Would you mind reading those? And so the taxi driver, he opened up the Bible, and like me, he put on his glasses, and he started reading, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He had never read this before. That's the reason he read like this. And then he said, There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. And the goosebumps began to run up and down his arms and his back. And he said, that's the guy. That's the guy in my dream. Who is this? What is this book? He was discovering for himself how God was at work and how the wind was blowing even through his dreams and drawing him to faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, God is at work in the world today in ways that most of us never get to hear about because there's security concerns. We don't publicize the names and the stories because for these Muslims, when they come to faith, they are under a death sentence. But friends, be not mistaken. God's wind is blowing. The question for us is how will we respond to that wind? Now, I remember at the University of Chicago, my wife worked downtown in advertising. I'd go down to the loop and some of those days, man, that wind, you know, the windy city... (laughs) It would blow between those buildings, and if you stepped around a corner, it would just hit you. And you just pulled up your collar, and you shuddered, and you pulled down your hat because it was a cold wind, and you didn't want to feel that wind, and you had to cut your way against it. It was hard. A lot of people, frankly, when they hear that the wind is blowing through the house of Islam, they say, well, it better blow through there before we blow it up. Because our response to Muslim aggression, Muslim terrorism, Muslim violence is, you want to see violence, we can show you violence. And we take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth attitude. I was getting my hair cut back when I had hair, getting my hair cut on furlough a few years ago. A sweet little old lady, she was in her late uh, 60s, maybe 70 years old. She sat and cut my hair while I told her stories of what God was doing in the Muslim world that I was excited about. And she was real sweet and she just wouldn't say much and cut my hair and waited till she finished and I'd paid her. And then she smiled at me. She said, I think we should just bomb them all. (laughs) 
I said, well, that's, that's one option. Um, or we could pray for them. And she said, well, I suppose. <laughs> She's not alone. You see, fear breeds hatred. And we've been attacked. We've been wounded. We thought we could ignore that part of the world until 9-11, and suddenly that part of the world is here raining down on us. And a lot of us are reacting with fear that leads us to say, we've got to attack them over there so they don't attack us here. That's one response to the wind. But realize that when people do terrorist things, that's an act of desperation. Because you can only do it one time. When you strap a bomb to yourself and you walk into some place to blow up as many people as possible, you're saying, I have nothing left but this. There is desperation in the Muslim world today because they've exhausted the full extent of the Muslim world's resources. And people everywhere are looking up saying, if this is Islam, what have we gotten ourselves into? And they're saying, God, there must be another way. And today, Christians are responding by saying, let me tell you about the Prince of Peace. Let me tell you about a God who loved you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. And Muslims are hearing that and they're saying, that's what I've been looking for all my life. The question for us today, how will we respond to the wind? I would encourage you, don't fight the wind. Don't turn your back to it. Don't kick against the goads as as Saul of Tarsus did, but rather ride that wind. This is the wind of God's activity. Now is the time to spread our sails through prayer, through love, through actively taking the gospel into the most difficult places on earth. Because when we do, we'll find that wind will carry us and along with us a whole harvest of people that Jesus is drawing to himself in salvation. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are grateful that it's not our mission. It's your mission. And you graciously allow us to be a part of it. But Father, when we become a part of it, you ask us to do it your way. You remind us that This isn't something we invented, something we created. It's something that you're doing even now. And we pray, Father, that you would use us as your instruments, that you would teach us how to ride the wind of the Holy Spirit so that we can be effective witnesses, effective prayer warriors, effective mobilizers, effective supporters of outreach and evangelism and gospel witness throughout the Muslim world. This is our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name.